Hebrews 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted to better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed them no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Thank you. Thank you, Emily, for reading this morning just a moment. Good morning, everyone. I want to thank Curtis and the other pastors and all of you for the opportunity that I have this morning to present God's word. It's an honor, and I pray that we all hear from God this morning through his word. A couple years ago, me and my wife, Allie, actually flew out to the Grand Canyon. And while we were on our flight to Arizona, uh, we knew we were going to the Grand Canyon. I decided to watch a documentary about the Grand Canyon so that I could learn more about it. And the documentary was pretty good, and I learned more about the Grand Canyon. And then there was that moment when we finally got to the park, and I got to the edge and could actually stand to where the Grand Canyon was. And if any of you have been part of something of such magnitude or of such uh, amazingness, you can probably relate to the fact that seeing a picture or being seeing a documentary does not compare with the reality of standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon. It is so amazing. Uh, I, I remember thinking, wow, this is amazing. This is why you make the flight over to be here in person. I bring up that story as a um, is I bring up that story to highlight the theme of the first couple of verses of chapter 8, which is the superior aspects of Jesus, is what we're going to see here in the first couple of verses. So we're not going to go into excruciating detail into each of these deferring aspects of Jesus, and the reason for that is, is it's covered in depth in other portions of Hebrew. So for example, let's read verse one. We see here, now the point and what we are saying is this. 
This is actually referring to chapter 7, the whole of chapter 7. It's about the priestlyhood of Jesus Christ. Curtis explained that to us last week. And what the author of Hebrews is saying, the point of all of chapter 7, the point of all Curtis was teaching on last week is this. We have such a high priest. He's really just saying like, we have someone that's that amazing. One who is seated now at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So he begins by saying like, we have that high priest. If you continue on in verse three, we see that Jesus brings gifts and sacrifices and those gifts and sacrifices will be covered in excruciating details in chapters nine and 10 about the specific sacrifice that Jesus Christ brings. As we go on, we see that Jesus Christ was not a priest according to the Levitical order, but as we learned last week, he's a priest according to the Melchizedekian order. We also see that he doesn't meet in a tabernacle, a tent here on earth, but he meets in with God, the Father in heaven. So I bring up all of this to say what I think we should draw from these couple verses here right at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 8 is this. Those temples that came before those priests that came before, the ministry that those priests performed before, they are, and I'm going to borrow the words from Hebrews chapter 8, copies and shadows, dim realities of what has actually happened. They are Jesus's ministry, Jesus's priesthood, Jesus's meeting place. It's not like the documentary. It's not like the pixelated images. He is the reality that has now come. This man is the thing that all the Old Testament practices are pointing to. He's not the middle school basketball player. He's the NBA MVP. He's not the preschool class president. He's the president of the world. He's not the lemonade stand businessman. He's the CEO of the world's largest company. Illustrations do not do justice to the fact that his priesthood, his meeting place, and his, um, his temple, and as we will see today, his covenant are all superior to what came before. So we see in these first couple verses, Jesus is far superior to what came before him. But let's read together verse 6 to see what we're going to be honing in our discussion on. Verse chapter, chapter eight, verse six reads, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. What really sets this chapter apart from the other chapters of Hebrews is the emphasis on the covenant that Jesus is mediating or negotiating being better than the covenants that have come before. So at this point, it's probably helpful for us to have a good description of what a covenant is. A covenant, I think it's going to come up on the screen here in a moment. A covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. A covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. This is a broad definition of covenant, but it works. 
A covenant is different than a formal contract in the fact that a formal contract, there's not much relational aspect to it. Like I think a lot of times when we download apps and we agree to the terms and conditions, we are binding ourselves in some sort of contract. But there's no relational aspect there with the developers over in Silicon Valley. A covenant is different in that it has some sort of relationship tied to it. Uh, it, it when looking for a good description of the covenant, strong kinship, relationship were words that I came across often. Also, we see that it has binding promises to one another. So when people make a covenant to one another, they have binding promises. I promise to do this if you promise to do that. It's also very important for us to know that just as covenants can be between different people, God, the creator of the universe, has made covenants with mankind throughout history. This happens, and when God makes a human covenant, it's called a divine human covenant, God-human covenant. And I think it's helpful for us to take a quick snippet of what these previous covenants are. So before we come to chapter 8 and see what this new covenant is, it's wise for us to look back and see what has God done before. So way back in the beginning of time, in Genesis 9, after the world has been flooded and Noah leaves the ark, God makes a covenant with Noah. And God says to Noah, Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So God is making a covenant saying, I will never again do that. A couple chapters later in the book of Genesis, God makes another covenant with Abraham. And what he says, he actually has two aspects of this covenant, of this promise to Abraham. He says, one, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And as you remember, he couldn't have children, so it was like mind-boggling to Abraham. He's like, I'm 90 years old with no children, and apparently I'm going to be a great nation. And the second aspect of the covenant that God makes with Abraham, he says is, and through you, all the nations on earth will be blessed. And he requests of Abraham, walk before me and be blameless and be holy. The third covenant that we see in the storyline of Scripture comes in the book of Exodus, after the Israelites have become a nation, after they're brought out of the land of Egypt, it's right before they're entering into the land. It's right before God is about to bless them with the land. He asks of them, and he basically says to them, I would like for you to walk in certain ways. I would like for you to be a certain kind of people. And so God gives them the Mosaic law. So this is actually important for us because we're going to pick that, that Mosaic law, that Mosaic covenant, we're going to pick up in this chapter as well. And the last covenant that God makes with um, mankind recorded in the Old Testament is with David. And he elaborates on that covenant with Abraham and he actually narrows the fo focus of the covenant and he says, the nations will be blessed through your bloodline, David. It's through your child that another king will come and all the nations will be blessed. We come to the new covenant or we come to the New Testament and we find that God makes another covenant with mankind. And what this covenant is, is it's with through Jesus Christ. And it's referred to as the new covenant here and elsewhere. And it is both a fulfillment of previous covenants 
and it's also there's some new aspects to it as well. It's a fulfillment in the sense that the promise to Abraham that all nations will be blessed is fulfilled. Like we are, most of us here are not Jewish people, but we and we are bringing in the blessings of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Another way in which it's fulfilled is um, Jesus, King Jesus has come through David. But it has other new elements as well that we will look into. With that view of the covenants, we also need to see that there is a temporary nature and one of the problems with one of the covenants. Let's look at verse seven, half of verse eight and verse 13. Verse 7 reads, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Verse 8, For he finds fault with them when he says, and over in verse 13, In speaking of a new covenant, to, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. First, we see that one of the covenants, particularly the Mosaic covenant, it had a temporary nature to it. It was there for a time. It was a placeholder until something better could come. And now it is obsolete and growing away. And the second thing we see is there's this type of fault with the covenant. We must be careful here and be, try to be exact. It's not on God's side that there's a fault. It's not, remember, there's two parties in a covenant and they both make binding promises. God gives them the law. It is a perfect representation of his character. It is perfect in every sense. The fault is with the people not able to do what God's asking of them. The fault is with the, their inability to do what God is saying. So what we're going to see in a few minutes is the way that the new covenant fulfills and picks up the slack where the old covenant was not able to do. But before we do that, I think at this point, it's pretty completely justified for you to think through, what in the world does this have to do with me? How does covenants that God is making thousands of years ago, and then even the most recent one was thousands of years ago, how do we bring that into relation to my own life? I think it's important for us to understand, if you are not in the new covenant, if you're not under the new covenant, which we're going to look at today, then you are under some sort of other agreement or some other functional covenant with God. All religions and even people who are not religious have functional covenants with God, and they may sound like this. I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, and you, God, are going to do X, Y, and Z. Or, I did this one thing this one time, thus, God's going to do this, this, and this. Or, when I meet God one day, he's going to be like this. Or, I know God is like this, so such and such. It's not so much a question of, do you have a covenant with God? But it's a much better question of, are you abiding by the terms and conditions that God lays out? Imagine a professor. We'll even imagine one at the University of Delaware. Imagine a professor at the University of Delaware, and a student comes up to him, first day of class, first day of class, listens through the lecture, and then the student comes up to the professor and says, thanks for the A+. See you next semester, bud. He just says that right to the professor. 
the professor's reaction would be like, what? What are you talking about? And then the student would respond and say, yeah, I showed up for one of your classes and listened, and now you're going to give me an A plus for the semester. Isn't that what you agreed to? And the professor's going to say, no, I have never agreed to that. This is how humanity looks when you say to the creator of the universe, oh, I thought the understanding was like this. I thought the understanding and the terms and conditions were like this. It is a risky business, you know, not being very clear with a holy, righteous, and perfect God on what exactly he expects of us. Additionally, additionally, and this is really what the passage talks about so much, when you don't do things the way that God has requested, you miss out on the blessings of the new covenant, of the new agreement. So that's what we're going to see very deeply here. It's a major emphasis of the passage that if we're part of this agreement that God has laid out, there are blessings associated with it. So we have seen what a covenant is, what some of the previous covenants are, and how we should not have functional covenants with God, but instead we should uh, abide by his terms and conditions of his agreement. So let's return to the text. So if you're looking at this passage from the Bible, it might have more narrow um, margins and it looks like poetic fashion. And that's because it's a quote from an Old Testament prophet, Jeremiah. And it's quoted from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. And the original context is that Jeremiah is telling the Israelites, God is about to kick you out of the land because you have not abided by God's covenant. And what he also does during this time is he instills hope with them, in, in them. He also says in this passage, he gives them hope of a day that's looking ahead. So in verse 8 we read, Behold, the days are coming, we see hope, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenants that I made with their fathers. And here is where we find that kind of explicit link to the Mosaic covenant. On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. And here you see the fault is on the people. For they did not continue in my covenant. And God punishes them by kicking them out of the land. And he says here, so I showed no concern for them declares the Lord. This new agreement will be not like the previous one. And so what I would like to do with our um, remaining time together is look at the ways that it's not like the pre previous one and how it's far better and has far better promises associated with it. The first thing we see is that it is internal instead of external. It is internal instead of external. One way the new covenant is not like the other is that the law, the truth to what we are supposed to do is known internally instead of externally. Verse 10 reads, for this is a covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Here it is. I will put my laws into their minds and I and write them on their hearts. See, under the old covenant, the law was written on tablets of stone, on pamphlets, on scrolls. It was external, and the people needed to abide by that external law. And the problem is not with the law. The law is holy, righteous, and good. But the problem is the people cannot obtain to it. 
The people are bent on wickedness. The people are bent on disobedience, on selfishness, on, on unrighteousness, and they fall short of it. What happens in a beautiful way under this new covenant is that the law, the truth, is written now on our souls instead of it being external. Our hearts are changed, and now we desire to do good. Um, Nick had read this earlier, and I think this is a beautiful passage showing what God has accomplished through the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27 reads, And I will give you a new heart. This is referring to the time. This is another prophet looking ahead to a time when there's going to be a new covenant that's actually going to fulfill and do what he needs it to do. He's saying, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. What the people needed, what we need is a transformation of heart. And this is achieved by every person under the new covenant receiving the Holy Spirit. The Spirit transforms our hearts to not desire evil as we once did. It's a change of desires. It's a longing for righteousness, a longing for holiness. And it's not even robotic. It's, a, it's not even like, I must do this. It's a, wow, now I want to do this. It's the difference between a child, you having to always have rules and tell them what to do, and a child who wants to obey. It's the difference between an employee who you just have to keep in a box and tell him all the rules and like, oh, come on, I have to make up a new rule because I don't want him to do that, versus the employee who seeks the best for the company. The Spirit does this in our lives. He does this in a few ways. One way he does this is he recalibrates our consciences. One way he does this is through things that we once thought weren't that big of a deal. Now we know, no, that is a big deal because I don't want to break the lie. I don't want to do wrong anymore. And another way he does this is through illuminating God's word in our hearts and our souls. And what's also amazing and beautiful is he not only tells us what to do. He not only writes it upon our souls and our hearts and makes us desire it, but he gives us the power to do so. Because so often we know what to do, but don't have the power to do so. Now, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we have the power to walk in righteousness. This is a promise of the new covenant. This is what God is intending when he's saying in the verses, I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is what he wants from his people and is what is achieved through the new covenant. So I'm a, I'm a pretty big problem solver. And it can get me in trouble sometimes just trying to solve problems rather than being sympathetic. But often I, and most of us probably, or some of us in this room, might fall into a mindset of, well, if we just had this person in office, or if we just had this rule, or if this, this people just had this knowledge or this technology or this state just put this law into effect or this counseling or this program or this friend, then all of our problems would be solved. But we need to remember if the heart is wicked, it will fi- it, our solutions are going to fall short. 
The true transformation of an individual, of a family, of the society, of the world, is through the transformation of the heart by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And it is so often true that we as Christians do bring solutions. We do bring money and aid and, and help, and we should be the first in line and sometimes the only ones in line to do so. But we must keep in mind what people need most is the ability to love God with all their heart, mind, and soul and love their neighbor as themselves. And that comes through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus has enacted. So we see in the new covenant, we see the new covenant is able to achieve what the old covenant was intending to do by internalizing the truth upon our souls. Let's take a look at another promise of the new covenant. It is inclusive instead of exclusive. It is inclusive instead of exclusive. During the Cold War, um, the U.S. decided to build a secret bunker called the Greenbrier, Greenbrier Bunker. It was a secret facility built to house all 535 members of Congress in the event of a nuclear attack. It was built in the 1960s and it sat 720 feet below ground. And for years and years and years, it was like more than 30 years, only a few select people knew that this bunker existed. Even the members of Congress didn't even know it existed. They had a bed there, but they didn't even know it existed. And then in the 1990s, through some investigative journalism, it leaked and the location and purpose of the bunker was leaked to the entire public. And now, any one of us with $40 can take a 90 minute tour of this secret bunker down in West Virginia. That which was once part of something only an exclusive few knew about is now inclusive for everyone. In a similar way, this is how the new covenant is. It is inclusive for everyone instead of exclusive for a few. And there's a few ways this is true. One, under the old covenant, it was generally for one group of people, the Jewish people. But now under the new covenant, we see Gentiles can be brought in. Another way, and this is actually what I think the verse is highlighting a lot, the author's highlighting, is the inclusiveness of knowledge or relationship with God. Verse 11 reads, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, know the Lord. You know, guys, every, hey, you go know the Lord, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the, great, um, to the greatest. See, under the old covenant, only certain people had that personal relationship with God. You had, Mo, you had the certain Moses, Abraham, Joshua, so certain leaders, then you had the priest, you had the prophets, and they mediated information to everyone in the congregation or everyone in the land. Now, it's not only for the house of Israel and not only for Judah, but now everyone who has faith is grafted in and we can go directly to God and we can speak directly to God and thus know God directly and personally. We are not in need of others to mediate information about God to us. We can personally learn and know him. I think a good passage that highlights this truth is from 1 John 2.27. It reads, but you Christians 
have received the Holy Spirit and he lives within you. So you don't need anyone to teach you what is true for the spirit teaches you everything you need to know. And what he teaches is true. It's not a lie. So just as he has taught you, remain in fellowship with Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is good news. It is not just the pastor. It's not just the pastors. It's not just Curtis. It's not just the leadership. It's not just the deacons. It's not just the Bible Sundays or the Sunday school leader. It's not just the really holy friend. Now everyone can enter into and know God personally. You might be thinking like, well, what is he doing up there standing then? Like, how does that work? <laughs> it's still beneficial and good for us. It's still beneficial and good for us to like one person to study and mediate information to others. And it's good for you to read and learn from other godly people. That's a humbling thing to do. But these are secondary means of knowing God. We now can go because of the work of Christ directly to God and know him. Now from the least to the greatest, they can know God through Jesus Christ. Thus far, we have seen that the new covenant internalizes the law. It is inclusive for everyone. And finally, we see here that it is on Jesus instead of on you. It is on Jesus instead of on you. Here's what I mean by that. Under the old agreement, under the old covenant, there is a sense in which it was on you to make amends and make amends for your sins. It was on you to be responsible for your sins. You had to go into the flock. You had to find the lamb or the bird or the sacrifice. You had to pay it out of your own pocket. You had to take it to the priest. The priest had to kill it, make the sacrifice. It was on you to right-size your relationship with God. And I, I want to just say, this is not just for the old covenant, old agreement. This is for anyone that has any functional agreement with God. It's on you to deal with the sin issue and to somehow make amends in that sense. What we see under this new agreement, under the new covenant, is verse 12. I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Well, how is this accomplished? Next week and in the weeks to come, we, Curtis will be going into, Lord willing, much further depth, particularly regarding the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But right now, I want to give a quick preview. Iniquities here, so you see here in verse 12, he's going to say they're iniquities. Iniquities here is synonymous. So that's just another word for unrighteousness, wickedness, wrongdoing, sin. And God is merciful toward our iniquities. Thus, he, and when he's merciful, he has compassion. He has compassion on our wickedness. Thus, he devises a plan to reconcile our debts. Think of that friend of yours. Imagine you have a friend or who's very, very in debt. You know, he owes thousands and thousands of dollars. And you devise a plan to somehow you're going to pay his debts for him. Here's how God does something very similar to that for us. God the Father goes and he sends his son, who is fully God, fully human, lives a perfectly righteous life. And the son dies the death that we deserve. And 
our sins are imputed to Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians is going to say, for our sake, so for Christian's sake, he, the father, made Jesus to be sin, who, who knew no sin. He did not know any sin. He never sinned once so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And the father pours out his wrath on Jesus instead of on us. The words that uh, Nick was uh, singing earlier, I reminded me with there is a fountain and there have I, though vile as he, have all my sins washed away. <laughs> Amen. So for those who have placed their faith in Jesus, they now, he is taking the iniquity on himself instead of we taking it on ourselves. Our sins and iniquities are on, not us, but on Christ. And this is a very big component with an agreement with God because we all have a sin issue and it's either gonna be dealt with at the day of judgment on you or it's gonna be dealt with on Christ on the cross. And so this has to be understood. These, ladies and gentlemen, are the brothers and sisters, not ladies and gentlemen, these brothers and sisters are the better promises associated with the new covenant. The truth, the truth, the law, it's internalized. Our hearts are changed. Secondly, it's for everyone. Most of us are Gentiles in this room. We partake in these better promises. And secondly, or, and thirdly, all of our wrongdoings are finally dealt with. In closing, I would like to leave us with two thoughts to ponder over the next week or hours or whatever it is. First, this text is highlighting the amazingness of Jesus Christ. That's what the passage is highlighting and repeating over and over again. Jesus is negotiating. Jesus is mediating. So our first thing that I think we should do, we should thank Jesus. We should praise Jesus and we should give him glory. The second thing, oh, sorry. The second thing that I think is important for us is it's a reminder for how people enter into this agreement. How is it like, Charlie, this sounds like a great idea, sounds like a cool agreement that I'd love to get into. What do we need to do? Because I'm working on a functional agreement with God that I'm not really sure that's going to work out one day. So how do I enter into this agreement, this new covenant that God has laid out? Um, on my day-to-day -day job, I am a Verizon account manager and I do B2B sales. And so essentially what I do is I'm the mediator between $100 billion Verizon and small companies. And I do a lot of contract negotiation. And these smaller companies, they can't just email legal or finance and be like, hey, I want to set up a contract with Verizon. Like, I'd love to do that. They can't do that. They have to go through me. And then I email legal and finance and a whole bunch of other people. In the similar way, Jesus is our mediator. He is the one that mediates this agreement for us between us and the Father. Thus, we need to remember to go to him, trust in him, have faith in him. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we are very thankful for um, the new covenant. Father, you... You did not need to do this, but you did. Father, you have finally dealt with all of our sins. You have made us your people through the new covenant. Thank you. Thank you for sending your son. We get to experience new life because you've done this and we've received your spirit. 
Father, would you help us in this next coming week and the weeks to come to love your word and teach it to one another, to know you more deeply? Would you also help us this week to praise and give honor and glory to your son, Jesus? And lastly, Father, would you help us to remember that you are the hope. You are the hope towards all that are suffering and all the problems. Help us to fix our eyes on you, especially during these uncertain times. Thank you, Father. Amen.